0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup is the fantastic, the fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Great to see you again, Lucy. Welcome back.
1: Great to see you.
0: Also returning to the Roundup is the incredible, brilliant, Linnae Erickson. Linnae is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Linnae also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Linnae, welcome back.
2: Thanks, I'm and ready.
0: On this week's Roundup, President George W. Bush on 9-11 in January 6th, and how far away today's GOP is from the second-to-last Republican president. Democrats compromise with themselves on a bill to protect our democracy and why this may or may not be the straw that breaks the filibuster's back. Biden's vaccine and testing mandate, where we are on the path to inoculate Americans, and the swollen saga of Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll talk about the political statements AOC and Billie Eilish made at the Met Gala, and what we can learn about creating change versus creating buzz. You can become part of this growing community at politicology.com slash plus. Let's dig in. Last Saturday marked 20 years since the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks, and we heard from the 43rd president... George W. Bush, who was just months into his first term when the towers came down, let's listen to the moment that got quite a bit of pickup this week.
2: That the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home, but in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life. In their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them.
0: For his allusion to the January 6th insurrection, W, of course, caught heat from the supporters and defenders of the attackers, including the former twice-impeached one-term loser. But I actually want to talk about how far... The Republican Party has moved in the dozen or so years since George W. Bush left the White House. And I suspect, Linay and Lucy, you two may feel a little bit differently about George W. Bush's rehabilitation in the public eye. Um, so, Lucy, why don't you go first, uh, then Linay? but what is George W. Bush's connection to extremism, fascism, nationalism, whatever you, whatever you want to call what is happening in today's GOP? How did you hear this speech, and particularly the spectacle of the president choosing this moment to to draw that connection?
1: Well, I wish W. had done it a bit earlier. I think, obviously, it's critical that he does this. And it's interesting to kind of contextualize the Bush family, because, for instance, you have Jeb Bush's son, George P. Bush, going all in with Trump. Mm -hmm. And really, at best, uh, the Bushes have been kind of lukewarm in their engagement as a whole. Yes. I think he still could have been stronger. But I do think that it got at a theme that we've talked about on Politicology with Susan, with yep. Mike, about the need to call these things out. And he did call it out. Mm-hmm. He didn't call it out as strongly as one might hope.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I wish he had really hit Trump harder. But I think it is a good, a good sign. I think on the— Meanwhile, there's a lot of commentary this week about how you can see a direct line from Mm -hmm. the war on terror, the Bush's kind of election in 2000 and everything that came after it to where we are now with the Republican Party. I understand that idea. I think it's a slightly incorrect diagnosis. I think that there is not a direct line from people like George Bush to people like Donald Trump and his supporters. I think that it's a story of the Republican Party believing they could hold together this big tent and believing that the ends justified the means and that you could keep people on the bus who were espousing terrible views, even, in fact, help them help you by promoting anti-Muslim sentiment, you know, um, messages that are harmful to people of color, uh, LGBT groups, a whole range of Americans, but that it was fine because, you know, you were going to get tax cuts or it was fine because you were going to get reduced regulatory burdens on small business, whatever it was. So I do think the establishment, like George Bush's Milk, mm-hmm. Deserves blame for where the Republican Party is now, but they deserve blame not because they were directly the kind of proponents of this kind of Trumpian proto-fascist behavior and language, but because they let those people stay in the mix mm. and they didn't kick them out. So I think it's a complicated legacy, and and I do constantly feel like former establishment Republicans need to do more atoning for that at every level. Yeah. But I don't think it's the kind of atoning that we
2: often— Act like is needed. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: I I follow Lene, How do you read this?
2: I mean, I think complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would say the same. You know, I was in law school in two thousand four, and I had a really excellent shirt that said "Dethrone King George," and <laughs> you know, uh, I felt very strongly at that moment that uh, the worst thing that could happen to our country was him being reelected, and I had no idea where we would be today. So to say that the bar has moved is um, you know, it, it's, I don't even have the words yeah. to explain, like, we can't even see yeah. Yeah.
0: 2004 from yeah, here. Yeah, the Overton window <laughs> is in a different house. It's,
2: it's <laughs> like, there. yeah, I don't know. It's maybe on a different planet. Yeah. And, Um, You know, I am consistently surprised and shouldn't be anymore by uh, currently elected Republicans um, allowing things to happen that would have never happened in the past. And they keep surprising me with, uh, you know, their their inability to stand up to Trump. Uh, So I'm happy to see this. That's great. Um, You know, it doesn't erase wars. It doesn't erase the, um, you know, anti LGBT uh, craziness. The 2004 campaign. campaign that Harmed me personally and lots of Same. other people, but um, but it it means something, yeah. and I I agree. I wish he had done it earlier. He did say something, I think, right after January sixth in like a written statement, but yeah. um, but it, he could have been louder. I'm glad he did it now, um, and I think he knew that um, this weekend there's this upcoming crazy person rally yeah. of people that are trying to call, you know, the woman that died on January sixth. Attacking the Capitol, a martyr. Yeah. So I do think this is an ongoing conversation, and he did decide to weigh in now, and and I welcome that. Um, and you know, he maybe he got tired of painting, and now he's like, maybe I need to like weigh in on this. But um, yeah, I I wish he would have done more. I don't know how much it would have done to influence the current yeah. direction of the party. I yeah. mean, Liz Cheney has done pretty much everything she could do and everyone else is basically like peace out. So, yeah. you know, I don't think Kevin McCarthy's going to change his mind because George W. Bush stood up, but but I'm glad he did. Yeah. W-
0: one of the things that stood out to me, we have to acknowledge, it is kind of crazy to think that there are people now entering their 20s who were not alive when this happened and each of us can remember probably exactly what we were wearing and where we were and what we were thinking as this was happening. And uh, and so sort of we we've, we've lived through this and a lot of people haven't. And one of the things um, I I wrote an op-ed at some point last year about the sort of essentially lamenting the fact that the, the sense of unity that we had right after nine eleven. a lot of people have talked about this and how the same kind of unity has has ev- not just evaded us, but has al- had almost been at that point during the pandemic. Um, sort of prohibited, right? It was taken off the table. The very thing that we wanted when we were all sort of in the middle of crisis is to come together for human togetherness. And that was sort of, you know, not just, not an option, but like dangerous. And, and, it, and W mentioned this in his speech. You know, it, there was a time when the nation came together and that feels like so removed from where we are now. But then at the same time, uh, I think on a recent podcast, someone noted, I, I think astutely, that that sense of unity was actually you know propelled us into some bad decisions as a country. So unity can 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 be good and bad. Uh, and so I I wonder first of all what you made of that reference to you know the t- the togetherness that we experienced versus what we what we feel now and what use it is for him to point that out without maybe like really doing something about it because this I don't know was this speech meant to bring people together I I don't know.
1: I'm not sure the speech was meant to bring people together. I think, I don't mean to be cynical.
0: I think What was the purpose? What was it? I he, think W know?
1: Bush wanted to go on record. Ah. <laughs> to be Okay. Maybe that's yeah. cynical to say. I think that we beyond parties, yeah. we just live in a completely different society than we did in 2001. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think about what did I do on September 11th? You know, I was at school then our family went to church and went to, you know, it, it was all very, very—everything happening was about being in your community and your neighbors and coming together in that way. And that's not how people live anymore, yeah. right? People go online to their online communities. And I'm not saying anything original here. Right. We just—community is different. Community mm-hmm. is not what it was in 2001. And so we—that leads to some really good things. Mm-hmm. That leads to the ability to have really positive insurgencies— and really bad ones mm. as well. Mm. And so you look at our media landscape, you look at how easy it is for new voices to break through, but that also means that dangerous voices break through, and it also means that we're not all tuning into, you know, a broadcast news episode yeah. about, you know, the the attacks on September 11th. We're all getting our news from 50 different sources and we have all curated how we interact in the world, the communities we are in online. Etc. To not be reflective of our, our physical communities, and I think that is the central mm-hmm. problem here in terms of whether or not we live in a time where national unity is is possible. And so, I think that Dubya is a throwback. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think he wanted to go on record. He chose September 11th, and that may be why he wasn't stronger. But I think that that there's no aspect of that speech that is going to have an impact on the Republican Party.
2: But it is so interesting. You know, I read uh, a lot of, um, you know, people's recollections of 9-11 on the 20th anniversary, as I'm sure lots of folks did. And one of the things that surprised me the most and really just uh, cemented how different things are today um, was the fact that Karl Rove, who I— don't think I've ever said anything nice about in my entire life and certainly never thought I would on a podcast, had the idea that George W. Bush should go to a mosque. And he did that on that day. And that contrasted with the, you know, the insurrection we saw from this, you know, this horrible man that, you know, that we've elected from the same party that difference in leadership is just something that's mind-boggling to me. And, I, and it goes to Lucy's point. Like, George W. Bush could have leaned into anti-Muslim sentiment and made the hate crimes and attacks and things that happened across the country worse yeah. and started Trumpism much earlier. He chose not to. He chose to do the opposite in that moment. And I, I thought that was, you know, and that was just not my recollection of Karl Rove. <laughs> but Bush also chose to
1: ignore um, ignore the anti-Muslim sentiment in a different way. He's, that's true. He, yeah. he let yeah. it go on. He, he. I don't remember Bush coming out strongly against birtherism during yeah. Obama's time. You have some lone examples like John McCain famously in a rally having a person that go off That was one of on, the
0: high-water marks of American right. yeah. political discourse mm-hmm. for me. Like, yes. man— that it,
1: happened in Minnesota, so I take credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> I take credit for it as an Arizonan. Yeah, well, actually, that's
2: probably better because I think the, the crazy woman was from Minnesota, and John McCain was the one who responded. So, I, yeah, Lucy gets credit. But,
0: but the bigger point stands, which is that you know there 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 really isn't any room for George W. Bush in today's GOP. That's no, right. that speech was not reflective of where the Republican party is today and and I think you know pl- there's plenty of evidence to that in terms of the heat that he got for giving it in the first place and from from the Republican party and so I I think you're right it's not going to have any sway on elected officials or 2022 voters or like it's just uh, I I I appreciated it but I also don't think it's
1: going to it does make give, a big difference. It gives it does give cover I'll just say it quickly it does give, I'm all about off-ramps, creating off-ramps for yeah. people from the insanity um, which that is a is a great segue, yeah. And it does create a continued off-ramp to people who are thinking, gee, maybe this is not my party anymore. Yeah. But it creates an off-ramp for people to, a permission structure for them to say, I'm not going to vote for a, Repub- a Republican next year. It doesn't impact... The Republican Party itself, we're just
2: talking exodus no?
0: Yeah, okay. Of
2: voters, not of elected officials. voters,
0: not of elected officials. Speaking of elected officials on off-ramps, let's talk about Chris Christie for one minute. He has, unfortunately, been in the news, this time for comments he made at the Reagan Library. Uh, Basically, Christie decried the Republican Party's embrace of election conspiracies and said that his party has to be truthful to the American people. And after his speech at the Reagan Library, Christie appeared on ABC's This Week alongside Yvette Simpson, Roland Martin... And Sarah Isger, after Roland Martin talked about Christie enabling Trump, Isger commented that continuing to criticize former Trump allies who have spoken out against him will hurt Democrats' chances of persuading voters. I want to take a listen to this clip
1: if you want to persuade the half the country that voted
2: for donald trump in 2016 to move to your side then you've got to stop villainizing them you've got to stop having these conversations where everyone who is not with trump. you is against you and when someone says that donald trump did something wrong you may want to consider praising that and trying to use that to persuade the people who are not going to be persuaded that by is that is going to have to Too be lame. the last
0: word this is actually a really interesting point and question which is how much credit and how should we give to people who are still in the party but willing to uh, speak out against the big lie and and uh, and and Trumpism in general? Now Christie, I think, is a terrible example of this because just watching him, he seems so disingenuous to me. I, I can't I can't believe him. But there are other people who genuinely have done this, and I wonder. I think, frankly, Sarah has a good point in terms of welcoming people. When they take the off ramp. And I don't think Christie is one of those people, though, to be clear, I don't think Christie is one of those people. But the bigger point remains, bigger question remains is, first of all, do you do you agree? What should that look like? How can how can people who have taken how can sort of those of us in the in the, you know, in the not the big lie camp welcome people as they as they get off that? train, because we need more and more people to get off that train. So how do you think about that point? We
2: do. And, you know, I am a big proponent of people being able to change their minds. You know, I worked on marriage equality. And one of the big things we always said was, if you keep characterizing every single person who at some point didn't support marriage equality as a bigot, we're never going to make progress. <laughs> because yeah. uh Most people didn't support marriage equality, so you have to make space. But at the same time, I didn't have to give Tony Perkins credit (laughs) for being a horrible homophobe and running the Family Research Council. So I think for me, the question is, what was your role in this? If Mm. you were a voter who made the decision to support Donald Trump, that that is one thing, and I hope that you came back around in 2020. But if you didn't, I'm still happy to have a conversation with you and and continue to try to bring you into the fold. If you were the person who prepared this dude for the debates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you have a different role. Yeah. And I I don't you're you're not stepping in when it's actually when it actually matters. He has no like role in the party. Nobody cares what Chris Christie says now, which is the only reason that he's saying it. Also,
1: Chris Christie, I think I think you're so right to bucket the voting class mm-hmm. and then the influencer I, leader right. class. I think that's super important. But even if you think about just centering sort of our our training our sights on the leader, influencer class. I mean, I'm people know I'm very close to Joe Walsh, who was a Tea Party congressman who did this massive 180 mea culpa. I was wrong. I helped pave the way for Trump. The guy has now devoted his entire life Mm -hmm. to apologizing, you know, listening, being against Trump, being against proto-fascism, calling it out all the time. To me, and I'm biased, that is quite different than Chris Christie wanting credit because Chris and Christie is still promoting the machinery.
0: Not just that, but also <laughs> and asking for power.
1: Yes. Yeah. Right. I
0: think that's a key component, too. That's right. Like, yes, OK, your you're role in it where you elect an official, but also what are you why are you doing this now? That's right. He's talking about running for president. He wants power again. And I think the question of whether or not you give someone power is a completely different question. And what are they doing about it, right? To
2: to your point, okay, I I realize the error of my ways. I'm going to do one interview that nobody's going to read because no one cares about me. Or I'm going to devote my life to ending, you know, fascism in America. Those are two very different paths. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. The Freedom to Vote Act this week. A group of Senate Democrats unveiled the Freedom to Vote Act, which is essentially a pared back version of the For the People Act, aka HR 1. The legislation was crafted by a group of Senate Democrats, including Amy Klobuchar, Joe Manchin, Raphael Warnock, John Tester, Tim Kaine, Jeff Merkley, Alex Padilla, and independent Angus King. The bill would have provisions for things like making Election Day a national holiday, same day registration mail, voting, and drop boxes, creating a minimum amount of early voting time, create cybersecurity standards, a reporting requirement for federal campaigns to disclose foreign contacts, importantly, an attempt to curb partisan gerrymandering, uh, and importantly, as we've talked about on this show and various guests have advocated for on Politicology— Uh, a national standard for voter ID laws paired with automatic voter registration at the national level. Now, those two things, as we've discussed, would have to go together if you were ever to do one or the other. And this seems like they've actually struck a compromise to get both of them in the same package. So uh, now everyone but Joe Manchin suspects there'll be basically no Republican support. And Mitch McConnell was quick to slam the bill as a federal takeover of elections. uh, But that doesn't mean the bill is necessarily done on arrival. Here's where it gets even more interesting. President Biden is reportedly ready to use political capital to whip Democrats into filibuster reform, if necessary, uh, and it almost certainly will be necessary, to get a bill that protects voting rights across the finish line. Uh, The president reportedly reportedly told Schumer and Pelosi he'll start picking up his phone if there is no Republican support for the bill. So, Lene, <laughs> How'd I do?
2: You did great. <laughs> okay.
0: First to start, I'm hoping. Uh, why don't you help us understand? First of all, if I'm if I left anything out, please uh, tell us. Um, uh, can you help us understand how and why this bill came together in the first place? Because this was an entirely intrademocratic caucus arrangement uh, with two other election-related bills already on the table, as we've discussed quite a bit. Why is there another bill? why do Democrats basically have to negotiate with themselves?
2: Well, I mean, all Democrats are doing right now is negotiating with <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> with so I think we're going to get into that for a while too. Yeah. Um, that's just our new fun thing that we're doing uh, because nobody in the Republican Party wants to negotiate with us. So this is this is where we are. Um, but, you know, just one thing that, that I'll say, you called this a pared back version. Yes. And there's one thing they added that I think okay. you would be really excited about, yes. which is addressing the counting post-election Melfast. Oh, I missed that That part. has happened in Arizona okay. and elsewhere. So they have things about chain of custody. They have things about who gets to count the votes and all of yes. that. So, Ron, they yes. addressed your concerns. They did finally. It.
0: Pass the bill. Pass so it now. <laughs> I
2: I assume that means that Joe Manchin listens to the podcast. So, thank you. Senator,
0: you are welcome anytime. There we love go. to have you.
2: Wonderful. So, um, the reason it came together is, you know, um, Joe Manchin said he wasn't going to support the bigger bill, the For the People Act. He had a couple of concerns with it and also that he wanted to try to put together something that was just reasonable and more slimmed down that wasn't, you know, every single thing every yeah. Democrat has ever wanted in the universe, which yeah. is what's in the For the People Act. Um but was slimmed down to try to see if he could get some reasonable Republicans on board. Yeah. Now, I think that was all, always a pipe dream or or, or a dance yeah. of sorts that he was going to lef- be left on the dance floor by himself. Yeah. But but he he values doing that, it's right? It's worth going
0: through the motions he to likes, give them the opportunity he to He likes do it. to go
2: through the motions. Sure. It's part of his brand. He did yeah. it on the, he said, I'm not going to support the big reconciliation Democratic bill until we do the bipartisan one first. And so this is kind of a version of that, right? This is our biff for voting rights. Got it. <laughs> Got it. And um, yeah, and I think it's a great bill. Like the things that there there are some tweaks. Um, but it even still has public financing in there as an option if yeah. states opt in for how, for house races. It has the um, it has the disclosure of dark money pieces. It has, as I said, these added pieces about um, you know election security and counting votes, mm-hmm. which I'm in favor of. So um, I think it's a, a great bill. Um, I think the question is just well, you know the theory of change here was that if Joe Manchin felt like this was his bill, yeah, this is the Manchin bill like mansion to me. You remember that? Yep. Uh, if this is the mansion bill, then he will be more bought in on the idea that we need to change the rules in order to pass it. And so that's now the hope for, for the next few weeks, because there is no hope that a Republican, e- even a single one, is going to support this. Yeah. And that sucks, yeah. but it's true. So I, I think that's the question is next few weeks, what do we see?
0: Okay. So before we get to the filibuster piece of this, which is very interesting, Lucy, the two... The the two um, most serious maybe criticisms of the bill from the Republican side is uh, that I've seen and maybe there are more are that there are that the mandates are largely unfunded. Many of them are unfunded, which seems like a very fixable problem. If we're about to spend yes. three point five trillion dollars on, like this, should be a drop yes. in the bucket compared to that. But anyway, and Susan Collins says that you know she represents a state like Maine that has the highest turnout in the country and why should the fed- why should she support the federal government sort of nationalizing election systems when what they're doing in Maine is really working why should they why should they swap this out for nationalizing election laws so what you, do
1: you what's so odd about Susan Collins's position is that the success of Maine should be the reason she supports this bill hmm. because what the bill would do is create chances in other states to have that level of voter engagement. And I was kind of confused and concerned when I saw her say that. But not worried? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yes, a little worried. Um, I was confused by that because I actually had a moment of thinking, wait, does this bill inadvertently screw with mm-hmm. Maine's mm-hmm. systems of, like, you know— Because that
0: would be a legitimate thing to of question. Yeah. Totally.
1: And it doesn't. It doesn't. Huh. And so—and in fact, other things—it's its not nearly as prescriptive as people might think. For instance, it does not require states to have independent redistricting commissions, right. which is mm-hmm. a um, kind of divisive, uh, polarizing concept, but it has even been,
0: Even for people who want to get rid of partisan gerrymandering or, like, who see the problem in it, because I'm not sold on independent redistricting for, for different reasons. Like, they're— that's a whole nother ball sure. of wax, but yeah.
1: But it doesn't require that. It just it just says, do it how you want, but whatever your system is yeah. to get at gerrymandering, you have to be able to show that you have, like, satisfied these criteria. And the criteria are things like that this wasn't, you know, partisan. There was not—one party wasn't favored, and that can be done through algorithms. And, yeah. and we have a lot—many more tools in our arsenal— There are things I don't like about this bill. I just—I'm not into public campaign financing. I Mm. have a different view, I think, about disclosure and anonymous giving, um, so-called dark money. Uh, I want to see more ways to grow and shine the light on what politicians are doing, Mm. and I don't think that that's always the best way to get at it. All of that being said— I would still want to see this bill supported because you have to decide on balance what what do I want here? Do I want to have more voter participation and do I want to have election security? And I do want all of those things. And so at the end of the day, that outweighs those other pieces. And those other pieces, by the way, if you're a Susan Collins— you can start giving conditional support, like I want to see this paired back. I think it really just I think it really does show the disingenuousness of mm. people like Susan Collins. And mm-hmm. I know we've seen this film before, uh-huh, but it's all this is all it's all fixed. And and that is that is good news yeah. because I think Lene was kind of alluding to this and saying this, that shows what a farce. Mm -hmm. The kind of Susan Collins Mm -hmm. of the world are in terms of their claim that they want to engage in bipartisanship.
2: Yeah. That's so true. Like if you, if someone comes to you with a proposal and you like seventy percent of it and you don't like thirty percent of it, why wouldn't you say, "Here's the seventy percent I like. Here's the thirty percent I don't like. Can we talk about this?" And that is not what happened. And I think Lucy's so right that usually a senator uses the fact that their state is good at something to make all the other states do yes. it. Right. And <laughs> instead she's like, "That's such a good doing point." Doing the opposite, and I'm like, I don't understand. Like we got Pat Toomey on the Mansion Toomey. Bill because Pennsylvania already had background checks. Yeah. So, the, like, why? So, Susan wouldn't Collins she... should be
0: saying, Hey, we do a lot of this right. stuff in Maine. Get on board. Get on board. <laughs> and instead,
2: she's like, uh, Live free or die? Like, yeah. I don't know what yeah. she's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. She's, she's emulating her New Hampshire neighbors. But Angus King, her colleague, yeah. her you know, the other from senator Maine. from Maine, was one of the drafters of this yeah. bill. Mm-hmm. Right. And I have to say, I believe that Mainers would be supportive of this because their voting systems, as Collins acknowledged, are very popular among Maine voters.
0: So, Susan, contact Angus, get together, (laughs) have a little kiki, work it out. Uh, Okay, let's talk about the filibuster piece of this. Redline the bill.
2: Redline it. Send your comments over. We can go through version 10. Susan Collins and
0: Angus King having a kiki. I think, I
2: think, okay. I don't want to go to that. I'm sorry. You can can go to that.
1: I'm not. Angus King is pretty fun. He's a pretty pretty fun guy. Okay. I was once on a plane with Angus King because I'm married to a Mainer, so I take the D.C. main flight a lot. Mm -hmm. And a person, like, next to us, we were a row apart, tiny plane, was sort of, like, so infatuated and enamored with Angus King that she was practically harassing him. She was saying stuff that if it had been, like, a male voter and a— Female elected official would be so inappropriate. She was, like, going on and on, telling him how sexy she finds him. Oh, my him, God. And how she just loves him and he's so cute. And she kept telling the flight attendant how cute he was. This was a morning flight, I just would like to oh say. My God. So there's
2: no alcohol yet. Either,
1: right? <laughs> and we were in okay. coach. Anyway, so, but I thought he was just so chill. And, yeah. I thought. What a guy that Angus King. There's a lot to like. All right. <laughs>
2: I'll
0: Angus go to a with him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right, let's talk about the filibuster because this is this is where it gets very interesting. Mansion and cinema have drawn, you know, pretty solid lines in the sand over the filibuster. Lene, how do you read what Biden is reportedly signaling about this sort of being the line in the sand that he's willing to you know, finally cross to get something done.
2: I read that he has finally uh, gotten a phone call from Nancy Pelosi because hmm. there is I was just on a, a phone call with folks about reconciliation and details and things um, on the Hill. And they were like, Do, does the Senate understand that there is no way for Democrats to keep the House if they don't pass this bill? because we do mm-hmm. and we would like them to solve that, please. Yeah. So I, I just think everybody in the House from the moderates to the liberals and everybody in between and certainly Nancy Pelosi are very aware that midterms are going to be an uphill battle for Democrats. And we are making that hill so much steeper if we don't pass this bill, potentially insurmountable. And so I think Joe Biden has finally, you know, been made aware of that or is recognizing that. Um, and he's been on sequencing right yeah. we saw this at the beginning and, and you were frustrated by it yeah. you're like how about we do yeah. this is what I wanted him to do the very first thing first. This, let's do democracy this yes. and then you can do child tax credit yeah fine, but he's big on sequencing. I think he will be ready to sequence now that we're moving on all these other things now. And this is basically the last effort because if we don't get it passed in the next couple of weeks, we can't implement it. And, you know, maps are already coming out. So we got to go now.
0: Not only are maps coming out, but also there we now just saw with this California recall, which turned out to be a big nothing burger. But before the election was even over, uh, Larry Ellis Elder, Elder, thank you. That
1: website, B- yeah, an anti fraud website. He had done it like a week before yeah. the election. A website that yes. was like report the fraud that you've seen because there are all these reports of fraud, which yes. just shows what it, how fixed it is.
0: So the measures to to curtail post election chaos and attempts to delegitimize the vote and the result are are exactly what we seem to be like. That's coming to the forefront right now. So maybe that's got his attention too. Plus I don't know. all these maybe.
1: secretaries of state races. Yes. They're crazy people. Yes. Yeah. Trump You're- is endorsing secretaries of state candidates now who and the litmus test is, are you a cheerleader for the big lie? Yeah. But I heard this week, and I've seen this more and more, and it is coming from the, I think, progressive left. I've heard uh, progressives say this week, that Democrats, the the kind of ruling class of Democrats don't actually want the filibuster to be reformed because then mm-hmm. it opens them up to having to be on record on a whole slate of other kinds of issues mm-hmm. where they express in you know support in say the Democratic Party's policy platform or while they're on the campaign trail uh, that they're in favor of something but, They'll never. They never actually want to see it pass because of their corporate overlords. But I'm I'm bringing this up because it's it's an interesting thought exercise. But
2: what do you I think? guess many of us that corporate overlords never as someone who <laughs> has been protested by those people actively. Um, but yes. you want it ref- uh, eliminated? Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, well, reformed, I reformed mean, in some way. Reformed, yeah. yeah. What what I'm concerned about is the ability of um of Republic the thing that holds me back is not the corporate overlords, but yeah. um <laughs> is the is the ability potentially of Republicans to come back and pass a twenty week abortion ban, yeah. pass a concealed carry reciprocity, right. pass a sanctuary cities bill, because I work on all those issues and just because we have fifty Democrats doesn't mean we have fifty pro choice votes. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we have 50 Democrats yeah. doesn't mean we have 50 votes against sanctuary cities, you know, it's and and the Senate is on the head of a pin. So I think, you know, what I've heard progressives say about the filibuster is, um, okay, well, if we pass this, we'll just then make Puerto Rico and D.C. states, and then the Republicans will never, never control the Senate again.
0: Well, yeah, which, I've been yeah. around for yeah. too long <laughs> to think that that's yeah, how that's this an, works. That's not, yeah. That
2: is not how this works. And so I'm I'm worried about what just 50-vote threshold for whatever we want looks like, yeah. given the fact that the Republicans have to win, like, 30 million less votes to control the Senate right. than the Democrats. Right. So and it's under- already stacked against us. However, you know, like I said, there's a lot of good stuff in this bill, and I think there are reforms you could potentially make to the filibuster that, yeah. um, you know, that wouldn't completely throw it out. And, you know, I'm, I'm very— interested in having that conversation. Totally.
0: Yeah. I mean, and then, and the, you know, I think I have said exactly what you said before. I think that Mike Madrid has said, and the, overwhelming, you know, to the extent that people give us feedback on that point, it is, well, yeah, but won't Republicans just do the same thing? Like, why are you, why are you, why, why be so cautious if Republicans are going to do the same thing they've always done, which is throw it out when they want to, when they take back in 2022, 2024? What what do you say
2: to that? They haven't yet. Okay. And here's why, because we are asymmetrically situated when it comes to the filibuster. Republicans mostly don't want to do stuff. That is, they... they. That's sort of the that's nature really of being conservative. Their platform yeah. is don't do stuff. Yeah. Right. You know, to the extent that they didn't actually have a platform this last year. But right. if they did, it was please don't do, don't do anything. Yeah, and And Democrats want to do stuff. Yeah. So they will, listen, they're really good at using procedure to put yeah. Democrats in bad positions politically. And they'll certainly figure that out. They do on motions to recommit in the House all the time. They're much better at it than us. That is such but a good point. Th- but they don't want to do stuff. So it's...
0: Asymmetrical <laughs> on the policy preference side in terms of actually governing. And it's also asymmetrical on the political side right. in terms of elections. So That's right. So those are two—
2: Because we're takes, very bad at putting them in bad positions. Well, yeah. And they're very good at putting us in them. Mm. But they, they also
1: then, in turn—and this is another important piece of this— Republicans also don't want to repeal stuff later that they opposed. Right? right. I mean, Correct. look no right. further to uh, Obamacare, <laughs> right? Yeah. None of them are— are repealing Obamacare they or don't the American Rescue that. Plan that they're All like going and taking right. credit yeah. for, and yeah. so yeah. those programs are that's so right. are so popular that's right. that that's why it's so yeah. dire for yeah. them in these situations because once something gets enacted, Once it, becomes it gets popular. through the mousetrap; it's not right. coming back. Yeah, right. right, right. So, so that's another another aspect of of this that. They're not actually serious about doing some of the stuff they claim they would do. And when they've
2: had the chance, they haven't done it. That's yeah. right. And I think judicial nominations are really different for obvious reasons, and that's why they blew it up there. Yeah. Um, but they they don't think of legislation the same way, and they mostly don't want to legislate,
0: yes. okay. I want to take a quick sidestep while we're on this subject, though uh, about about the the um the freedom to vote bill. I saw some really interesting polling on CNN. Uh, Nearly all Americans feel that democracy is either under attack, 56%, or is being tested, 37%. But here's where that gets kind of scary. Republicans are far more likely to think that democracy is under attack than Democrats, 75% to 46%. So to me, at first glance, the first thing I think of is, you know, okay, we we know we see all of the grievance in the Republican Party, but the first thing I think of in terms of why the Democratic number is so low is that they're in power right now and that yes, that correct. creates a sense of comfort. Correct, And that is really frightening, concerning to me because, and I think I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again, Donald Trump lost by very slim margins in a handful of states. We've rattled them off before. And there there is absolutely no reason the Democrats should be comfortable right now. This that was a the November was a live to fight another day moment, not a whew, like we've averted, you know, it's it's all it's all gonna be okay now. What do you make of this?
2: I mean, I've heard from people in Virginia that this is definitely something they're concerned about, right? Like Virginia and New Jersey have those weird off-year yep. gubernatorial elections. So they have a big one coming up, and the folks that I know that work in Virginia are like, the Democrats are not paying attention and I'm
1: like Virginia's blue now yeah they're yeah. like we're all good oh, we yes. did it Fine. and <laughs> yeah.
2: listen Biden won Virginia by a lot like yeah. it wasn't a close state but um, but that's not going to necessarily carry to their state legislature and everything else especially if people don't come out to vote right. so I have heard a lot of concern about that and I and I get it right yeah. like I'm I'm tired of this too yeah yeah <laughs> I would like to we're as I was r- of recently quoted saying watch Bachelor in Paradise in Peace <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't get to because now there's McAuliffe ads talking about the six week abortion ban and how you know and they're running them on my Bachelor in Paradise. Uh-huh. That's my time, <laughs> but <laughs> it, and it's two nights a week. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> so you know, but but I think that's right. We're all like Joe Biden's yeah. in the White House. Everything's fine. Can I just please take a little break because I've had to be like really exercised for. Th- Four yeah. years, yeah. and I just need a break, and and we can't. Yeah. The answer is we can't. Yeah, and the the fundamental problem here is that
1: the thing that Democrats think is the solution to I don't I don't mean to caricature, cari- sure. you know, I don't mean to sort of stereotype all Democrats, but Democrats tend to think we're going to pursue a federal solution, like mm-hmm. a federal. I get yeah. it, I totally get it. We'll, yeah. We see that with the vaccine minutes, we see this with the freedom. There's a product. preference
0: toward a national yes. solution, and, to and Republicans
1: yeah. have. A preference to local solutions, mm-hmm. but Republicans also pay a lot of attention to federal politics, and Democrats don't pay enough attention ah. to local politics. Mm-hmm. We talked about this two weeks ago. That That's Steve correct. Bannon is busy getting all of his yep. people into precinct, becoming precinct committeemen yep. in local That's parties, right. yep. election clerks. Every, the you machinery. Know, this is why yeah. this is why Democrats blew it on redistricting, right? Yeah. You had Stacey Abrams and Eric Holder. We really need to pay attention to this. No one paid attention to it, yeah. and so now you're in 2020. You've overwhelmingly Republicans control state legislatures, mm-hmm. control the redistricting mm-hmm. processes, and they're paying attention. They're always paying attention, and Republicans are most effective when they're the underdogs and out of power. So and when nobody's anyone, paying attention
0: yeah, to them.
2: And if anyone <laughs> thinks, oh, we like dodged a bullet, yes. But the the hits are going to keep coming, and yeah. I think there's a great little vignette about this, which is Loudoun County in Virginia, where some cuckoo bananas crazy people are trying to oust the entire school board over critical race theory and. Democrats don't realize this is happening, but it's on Fox News every day. And it's happening in California. It's too. happening everywhere. And we're not paying attention to school board races because we're busy watching Bachelor in Paradise, maybe. I don't know yeah. what we're up to. But <laughs> but I'll
0: tell you what, if they're that exercise that they'll go to school board meetings day in and day out, guess what? They're going to vote.
2: That's correct.
0: There's intensity there. OK, COVID mandates. Last week, President Biden announced a sweeping mandate that could affect upwards of 100 million Americans in an effort to increase vaccination rates and get closer to defeating the pandemic. The order directs the Labor Department to require all businesses with 100 or more employees to require either vaccinations of their workers or to test them at least once per week. And I want to talk about the politics of the mandate. But first, here's some data. Looking just at the battleground states, employer vaccine mandates are quite popular. In Arizona, 68 favor, 32 oppose. Georgia, 63 favor, uh, 37 oppose. Michigan, 61 61 favor, 39 oppose. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, similarly, 64, 68 favor. down Down the list, in the 60s favorability here. Majorities of Americans are vaccinated and they support vaccine mandates and we should talk about why there's a general impression that this is, you know, close to an evenly divided issue because it's not an evenly divided issue. Um, and is this order a sign that Democrats are, you know, finally going to start acting like the majority is with them on this? And that, you know, it would seem, Lene, that the winds of public opinion are finally at our backs, That that, that right? So what do you make of the data and this new vaccine mandate? And maybe you can sort of briefly... Um, explain the controversy over the legality, the potential legality or illegality of the of the of the mandate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think actually Joe Biden's got both public opinion and the courts behind him on this. Uh, you know, this isn't uh, the first time that we've um, mandated um, vaccinations for a whole number of people. And uh, and I do think that this is both good politics um, and uh, and very, very popular. But I what I think the tension is and why it seems to be more, you know, they're more on tiptoes about doing it and took them so long is because they actually just want people to get vaccinated. Yeah. And the question was, was this going to do that or have the opposite effect? Mm. And I you know, I think that that's a legit question, right? If it feels like, OK, the federal government's mandating me to X, Y, Z, are people going to dig in more against the vaccine? And I think what they've now realized is the people who are dug in against the vaccine are dug in against the vaccine, and there's really nothing else they can do yeah. to make that worse. Yeah. But they waited it out for that reason, because I think – ultimately what they're thinking about is how do we get through this pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. And that will be good politics on the other side. But, you know, they had hope that if we just let people, you know, handle it in a different way, maybe more people would get vaxxed and they, and they didn't. And now they've done this. And I think it, it, it has started to be effective. And, you know, certainly in the D.C. area where everybody works for the federal government, yeah. uh, you know, that makes me feel a lot safer. But also, you know, I've heard from employers that have been really happy they didn't have to make this decision. They're the yes. ones that are like, okay, thank you, because yeah. I didn't want to have to. I say didn't want to have to
0: do this, but now I can blame the law. Yeah. That's right. right.
2: So I, I think, all in all, it's it's probably the right policy and the right politics. And I, you know, I just hope that it gets those numbers up.
0: Yeah, and Lucy, that's a point that you've made before. I think several weeks ago, like actually being grateful for the law changing. I think you made this when jo- when George was on with us. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, this serving as a good excuse for people who wanted to do the right thing, but it was uncomfortable. But you could also see this as not a vaccination mandate, but really a testing mandate, right? If you flip this around, because that's if you don't get vaccinated, then you just have to get tested every single
2: day. Except like for that, if which, you're a federal employee. The federal employee and federal contractor pieces do not have a testing uh, out. Ah, okay. So the you private sector it. ones do.
0: So I want to talk about the teachers' union front of this. So we just had uh, the president of the National Education Association, which is the largest teachers' union and professional educators' association, say that they do not support blanket mandates despite the crisis that is getting children back into classrooms uh, because, alas, some of their membership are anti-vax or vax-hesitant. And, uh, Linnae, can you help us understand why Rebecca Pringle – Um, who is the NEA president, wouldn't advocate for a blanket vaccine mandate for teachers?
2: I mean, I think you have to remember what a union's job is, right? A union's job is to um, advocate for uh, the employees to be able to negotiate their terms of employment with the most power possible and this is the employer telling the employee to do something so i think just by nature of what it is um you know it it, it kind of puts the unions in a in a tricky position yeah. um, you know but other people would say well you're also supposed to make sure that the workplace is safe for these other employees mm-hmm. and probably Probably a lot more of them, you know, are are being put at risk by the people that aren't getting vaxxed. So uh, the unions I've seen um, across the spectrum have come out on different sides on this. And I do think it's because their membership is diverse and they are a membership organization and they have to follow that. And um, it's really awkward for Joe Biden because yeah. do you know who Joe Biden loves the most? <laughs> Teachers. Teachers. Yeah, He loves them the most. He's married to one. Like the number of times that he did campaign events with the teachers unions, like probably more than anybody else. (laughs) And, you know, which was notable because Obama had a much more fraught relationship with teachers unions. But Biden, like, I mean, they were just like making out the entire time during the campaign. He loves them. And so this was a hard decision, but I think uh, ultimately the right one.
0: I just wonder what percentage of teachers fall into that category that are resistant to getting the vaccine. I'm sure it's
2: different state by state, right? But like, I was just, I listened to something about a... Um, a, a bunch of healthcare workers who yeah. are are still hesitant, and, nurses in particular. You know, and it's yeah. it's just so frustrating because yeah. you're like they're putting people at risk. The other piece of this mandate was about um, you know, hospitals that take Medicare and Medicaid funding, and mm-hmm. so that applies to them too. And I'm like, yeah, it, if you go into the hospital, you should be able to make sure that the person that's yeah. helping you isn't giving you COVID. Yeah. that
1: seems reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> I think that one of the most important considerations in thinking about this mandate is, and you mentioned this is kind of the balance between whether or not it will pass muster constitutionally versus just the cover yeah. it gives and the kind of time it's buying to implement these things. So mm-hmm. one criticism that I've seen that I think is valid is that this should have just been done as a mandate on individuals rather than on employers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of one of the chief uh, arguments mm-hmm. for why this is not going to be constitutional, that Jacobson, which is the the precedent by which we say, yes, these mandates are fine, that that was on individual people and that this interferes with private business. And and actually, Ben Dominich, the publisher of The Federalist, fearmonger in chief, had written, and I'm going to bring this back to Chris Christie. In 2015, he wrote a piece about how during Ebola, Chris Christie was saying he wouldn't support like vaccine mandates around yeah. things. And and Javnish was like, that's insane. Of course, we need to have these mandates. And so people are like, hey, Ben, what are you saying now? And she's yeah. like, but hey. it's because of the mechanism by which this is being ah. done. But that class of people are also not saying, so I'm fine with an individual right. they're mandate.
0: Also, yeah, they're not doing right. that. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So,
1: but ultimately, it doesn't matter because this does give entities, this first one, it's much, much easier, The the kind of, just mechanics of an individual mandate for vaccinations would be very difficult. Um, Two, how do you check? Employers are a very effective checker, Mm -hmm. right? Because people don't want to lose their jobs. Also, it not only gives employers cover, but once an employer has put this policy in place and is saying, well, we're just trying to comply with the federal executive order— they're not going to roll them back no, and even if right. they say, do, do this. even if yeah. they do they're sending out notices to employees that are along the lines of we you need to, to send your vaccination this. record mm-hmm. right now get vaccinated right now so people aren't going to become unvaccinated
0: <laughs> that's right <laughs> so like let this run its there's course there's
1: not an anti booster <laughs> right and so, you yeah. can't be sucked out right, of you. right right yeah. and and i and i think so as a political calculus this is very savvy we don't know a ton about the cross tabs of who is saying they supported, and who, as opposed to I haven't seen good trust ups, but I would doubt that for people who are—I doubt there are a whole bunch of people who would have been Biden voters who are going to become single-issue yeah. voters on the subject of vaccine mandates, and also vaccine mandates are going to cause us to get out of the pandemic. And And that that is how Democrats are going to win things. (laughs)
2: As Martha
0: Stewart would say, (laughs) that's a good thing.
2: It's a good thing for everyone, and it's also a good thing for Democrats politically.
0: All right. It's time to talk about the tweet. The tweet, capital T, capital T. If you had the displeasure of opening Twitter earlier this week, you would have seen a lot of discourse over Nicki Minaj's assertion that her cousin's friend in Trinidad's testicles became swollen after he was vaccinated, causing his fiance to call off their upcoming wedding. Nicki used this episode to explain why she's not yet vaccinated and that she would, quote, do her own research. Okay, so... um, this was quite an episode, and the best take I saw on this was from Trevor Noah, the host of The Daily Show. Really hit it out of the park with with his note about doing your own research, because for you know there, we can have a conversation about misinformation, how to properly use your platform. You know, Nicki Minaj has twenty two million Twitter followers, or something like that. Um, uh, and the point Trevor made was. Doing okay. First of all, Nikki's not in a. She's not a scientist with a lab coat. She's not doing experiments, right? So when it comes to research, a lot that has already been done, right? We've the people who are qualified to do the research have done the research. You just need to know about it, and that's fine. You can go look that up. But his point was for a lot of the people who are following her, that tweet will be their research, and I think that that. I think it was really, really sad and probably did a lot of damage um, and spread a lot of concern that, you know, is not founded. And so anyway, I wonder how you read all of this and how tangibly harmful is it for people with large followings to share this type of misinformation, even though there is sort of a sentiment of like, yeah, you should know what you're getting. You should understand what a vaccine is and how it works and why it's going to keep you safe. You should do that. I I leave it. I leave it to you. React. (laughs) What do you what did you think about this?
1: I mean, as if to prove, as if to to validate what you're saying, Nicki Minaj's tweet about her cousin's friend's testicles caused the CDC to sort of put out a spray of of advisories about how that's not a thing to worry about. So Nicki Minaj has millions of followers. Obviously, the CDC thinks that she's impacting people's perception. And so that just shows how much weight... The voice of these influencers and
2: celebrities carries with the with the general population. The
0: people who follow them and trust them.
2: I can't. I mean, (laughs) if you're doing research on a vaccine, going to Nicki Minaj's tweet thread is not the place to look for it. So, I just sigh but but, I do think you know, to Lucy's earlier point about where we get our information now, that is what people think of as research is, okay, I saw this on. Uh, you know, I saw this on Instagram. I saw this on, um, you know, on TikTok. And I mean, the number of times, honestly, that uh, <laughs> that the fourteen-year-old in my household updates us on the news based on TikTok is really astounding. Wow. And. And this I'm sure is on TikTok. Right. And so and it's always super weird because it's always really old stuff. Like, Mm. you know, during the 2020 election, she's like, did you know that someone accused Donald Trump of rape? (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, yeah. However, again, (laughs) but the White House she's like this just (laughs) happened. It just happened on TikTok. And I was like, well, maybe it just got to TikTok. I don't know. She's like, there's court documents. I'm like,
1: uh-huh. <laughs> the White House knows that, which is why part of their public information campaign has relied on TikTokers. Yeah, which actually right. has
0: been brilliant. Olivia yes. Rodrigo. Uh, exactly. You. Totally. Yeah. Another good one. Yeah. Okay. When you are doing your research this weekend, what stories will you be watching, Lene?
2: I am really interested in uh, the dynamics that are happening within the Democratic Party. We've talked a lot today about the Republican Party and how royally screwed it is. Sorry yep. to all of you who used to, uh, used to you know, participate. <laughs> um, but the Democratic Party is also having a lot of conversations about where we go from here. And, um, you know, there was a recent election in Ohio um, where, uh, you know, the, the left, the squad, Bernie Sanders, everybody leaning in really hard um, for this woman who had been a Sanders acolyte and she was beat by you know the more establishment candidate. Um, and you know that was one of, one quadrillion wins by what I would say is my wing of the party. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, and yet the, you know, the one anybody ever goes back to is AOC, AOC, AOC. But they keep trying to AOC again Mm -hmm. and unsuccessfully. Um, But anytime there is that moderate versus more lefty um, kind of fight, then we we're going to have a whole bunch of news about it again. So what you need to watch now is there was a primary that just happened, um, both in Boston and in Cleveland, and I think they are going to set up really clear you know, kind of Biden Democrat mm. versus Bernie Democrat mm. options in blue cities that are big, um, that are probably going to be talking about crime mm-hmm. and, you know, some of these things that that percolated in the um, in the New York City race. And they will be two more testing grounds for this idea of, um, you know, in a blue city um, with a lot of people of color uh, is what Bernie Sanders has had on offer, had, continues to have on offer, where people want to go? Or are they going to go with a more pragmatic progressive? Yeah. And so the the primaries have set up this, um, you know, kind of head to head in November. And I'm very curious about what happens, even though I know frustratingly, no matter what happens, the left is taking over the Democratic Party will still be the headline the next day because it always is. And I spend my entire time trying to talk people out of that. Nina,
0: what was her name in <laughs> Nina Turner. Nina Turner. And I actually talked about that on a look ahead because of the way she handled the post-election period, which I thought was extremely irresponsible, calling it fraudulent or something, that dark money. But anyway, that's a really good good thing to look ahead to. Um, Also, you mentioned because there are so many people of color in these cities, I think, okay, let me just ask you this. Why do Democrats assume that all people of color vote for Democrats?
2: Because, because they don't. The
0: Hispanic community largely Correct. Like, yeah. And
2: actually that's a super um super interesting point from what we saw in 2020, particularly non-college educated. People of color are trending away from the Democrats hard. And um, what the other interesting thing I saw this week was in California. Um, if you look at the crosstabs, um, Hispanic men only supported keeping Gavin Newsom in by like fifty-three, when wow. everybody else was in the sixties, wow. right? Like very, very high in terms of the um, you know retention election for yeah. for the recall. So I I do think it's something we need to. We're going to come back to, to this. Yeah. We're We're going to have a whole conversation about this. There's a whole colloquy about this, for sure. And um, the answer is that Democrats assume uh, that we just get all those votes. And (laughs) so we don't actually try for them, and we need to work on that.
0: What you watching, Lucy?
2: I know there's a lot of news right now, but something
1: that I think should be getting much more coverage than it is, Mm -hmm. is the criminal trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of Theranos. And actually... uh, if you need catch up on Until you Theranos, make it. right? If you need to catch up on what I'm talking about, Alex Gibney, who you've had on the podcast, That's had right. a great HBO documentary about Theranos called "The Inventor." So everyone could watch that as a primer.
0: Ooh, I haven't watched that. Ooh, we should have Alex it's Gibney your back weekend on the show. Watches. It yes. is, yeah,
1: it's your weekend watch for sure. But Theranos, this trial is everything. So she, it has, it has so many facets of culture. So she was this young Stanford undergrad who dropped out of college because with no experience at all in biochemistry or inventing, she (laughs) was going to revolutionize blood tests. And she was kind of like the ultimate girl boss. And she just swindled a whole bunch of people into believing her. She had the craziest board. She had George Shultz. She had Henry Kissinger. She had Mattis. She was raising money from Rupert Murdoch. She raised $724 million. Her company was valued at $10 billion, and it was all smoke and mirrors. It was all smoke and mirrors. And she was—when I used to lobby in states, Theranos had lobbying teams in every state because they were getting states to help facilitate partnerships with large pharmacies to have this blood testing available. The blood tests, by the way, were crap, and it (laughs) uh, was—people were getting— False cancer diagnoses and having one so was told he
2: had or, HIV yes, or and he not. did not in God. fact have HIV. Yes, it
1: was crazy. So now she. So this all came out and it. And David Boyce who's Harvey Weinstein's lawyer, was her lawyer, and there was a Whew. Wall Street Journal reporter who wrote a book called Bad Blood, and that reporter was being threatened and. Elizabeth Holmes was trying to get Rupert Murdoch to fire this reporter. It was like the only good thing Rupert Murdoch ever did. He was like, I can't. That crosses (laughs) the line. But it's so interesting because now she's on trial, and she's really, really weird, really weird person in general. But now, after coming up as this empowered woman girl boss— She is now, one of her central defenses is not that this is all untrue, but that she was under the spell of her Svengali COO, um, who basically was making it impossible for her to run the company correctly and all this stuff, which is like the least feminist thing in the world. (laughs) And so it has, this story is everything. I mean, just the numbers, I spend a lot of time thinking about venture capital and tech. I mean- it says so much about kind of the era of venture capital. Yeah. It says so much about our government and sort of societal mechanics where we want to embrace innovation yeah. without vetting this. And it says a lot about the the age of the woman as a CEO and how promoting women also means that we have to call out people like Elizabeth Holmes. So it's
2: fascinating and it is um, gripping. So I gotta go
0: watch that documentary now. The most
2: important question yeah. uh is is she gonna use her really low voice in the <laughs> trial? Because she had said if I talk lower, that's how people take me seriously. People listen to me. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe she's gonna use a really high <laughs> voice. <now>. And <laughs>
1: she is not her trademark, people may remember to jog people's memories. She would wear a Steve Jobs outfit and she has stopped doing that. Her father-in-law, she then in the in the intervening years while she was being criminally charged. She married a, you know, multi-hundred millionaire um, person from a prominent family in San Diego. And her father-in-law, who's like a, you know, massive, possibly billionaire real estate developer, came to Elizabeth Holmes trial this week and he wore a disguise and claimed that he was (laughs) named Hanson and claimed that he was like a car mechanic. And it turns out it's just, I mean, it's like, you know, weird begets weird, but... It's it's worth a follow. I am here for it. I
0: am absolutely here for this. I uh, I don't know how. I didn't really like. I knew this whole thing was happening, but I sort of slept through the controversy. I just yeah. So this is all like I'm living this afresh. So
2: <laughs> it's worth your Lucky time. You.
0: Oh man. Okay, Lucy Linay. Before we go to the after party, aka Politicology Plus. Where can people find you on the internet?
2: At Linnae Erickson on
1: Twitter. I'm on Twitter, too, at Lucy M. Caldwell.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.comslash plus. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.